0: Hello and welcome to the House of Lords podcast.
1: This month we hear about why a House of Lords committee is looking into the use of artificial intelligence in weapons systems.
0: We also find out why another committee is looking into the future of the horticultural industry and what that means for us all.
1: Plus we speak to Lord Byrd, founder of The Big Issue, about what brings him to the House of Lords and what he wants to achieve.
0: Hello and welcome to the new episode of our podcast. We are speaking to two committee chairs this month about their one-year inquiries into the horticultural industry and the use of AI weapons. Then we'll hear from Lord Byrd about his work.
1: First up is Lord Lizvane. He's a former clerk of the House of Commons and is currently chairing a committee looking into the use of AI weapons. Here's what you had to say.
2: Hello, I'm uh, Robert Lizvane, Lord Lizvane. I'm chair of the... Special Inquiry Committee into Artificial Intelligence and Weapons Systems and the committee is one of four set up by the House uh, as a one-year inquiry we have to report by the end of November.
1: Lord Lizvain, you're currently chairing the new committee looking into the use of Artificial Intelligence in Weapons Systems. Uh, First of all, could you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: I spent my career in the House of Commons Service and I finished as Clerk of the House I retired in 2014, and so I've been in this house uh, for very nearly 10 years. Um, I'm a cross-bencher after a a career spent being rigidly politically impartial. I certainly couldn't be anything else. And I have lots of other uh, occupations and uh, um, interests, but I spent a lot of time in the house. Uh, I suppose uh, it's quite helpful, because in my professional career down the other end, I should think I was involved in something like uh, a couple of hundred select committee inquiries. So I've seen select committees in lots of different modes and lots of different uh, subjects.
1: How did you find that um, sort of transition from being a member of staff in the House of Commons to then being a member of the Lord's?
2: Uh, It was fascinating, (laughs) very, very different. And I think one of the really important things about the relationship between the two houses is that it's not competing, it's complementary. And very often you find people who say, oh, the Lords does this or the House of Commons does that. But the thing is that the two houses do recognisably similar things, but they do them in different ways. So the complementarity, as it were, of parliamentary activity... Is something which is really important in providing an effective counterweight to the overmighty executive. And executives are always overmighty. So I think that's probably something I noticed immediately. In terms of the atmosphere in the House, it's very uh, thoughtful and reflective, which you could never say really about the House of Commons. Uh, and it is, it's extremely courteous. And the fact that so many members of the House have expertise or experience, I usually use the word experience because expertise takes a lot of effort to keep up to date. Uh, the fact That fact means that ministers, I think, get a rougher ride and there's more time for the government to be called to account and ministers to be examined than there is in the rather more helter-skelter uh, proceedings in the House of Commons.
1: And one area in particular uh, the committee will be considering is autonomous weapon systems, Uh, so systems that can select and attack a target without um, human intervention. Uh, Why do you think it's important to have a Lords Committee looking at this issue now?
2: It's extremely important to have a Select Committee looking at it uh, because it's a highly contentious issue and the evidence or the factual basis for a lot of views about AWS and, of course, about AI more generally, um, is very often uh, disputed. So, uh, a select committee, depending uh, for its eventual judgments on the evidence that it hears, is a very good vehicle to take forward that element of, to analyse public policy and to take that forward as a means of supporting and enhancing debate. So far as a Lord Select Committee is concerned, again, I think we go back to the being able to draw on that well of expertise and experience. Uh, The committee is relatively large at 13 members, but uh, everybody has got something to contribute. It is highly bipartisan, with four Labour, four Conservative, two Lib Dems, two crossbenchers, and a bishop. And that is always an advantage when you're looking at ethical matters, which of course we are in some detail. And the the background that the members have, I think, is a great support and enhancement of the inquiry. We've got a former Secretary of State for Defence, Lord Brown of Ladyton. We've got a former Minister for the Armed Forces, Lord Hamilton of Epsom. Uh, We've got uh, a former Chief of the Defence Staff, General um, Lord Horton of Richmond. So it's that sort of background that we can draw upon, I think, to make the inquiry um, more authoritative than it would otherwise be.
1: And what will you be looking at during the inquiry?
2: Really every aspect that we can squeeze in in the relatively limited time available. Um, There is this issue of uh, meaningful human control. So there is the trade-off between being able to say that you have an accountable person who is part of the chain of decision and that person being able to operate quickly enough to make a weapon system effective. So that's just one example, and there I think we need to probe in some detail the current government policy, which we are doing at the moment. Uh, we also need to look at the way in which the use, potential use of AWS fits within international humanitarian law, and that is an extremely complex area where we're able to draw on some highly expert support. So those are the sorts of issues. If we move down the AWS route, uh, what will that difference? What difference will that make to the way in which weapons systems are procured? What, will, what difference will it make to the UK's global standing? Uh, is there going to be an arms race in effect on AWS? So all of those things, as you can imagine, that's quite a complicated tapestry and we are doing our best to unpick some of it uh, in order to uh, uh, reach um, robust and resilient conclusions.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, to help you examine all those areas, you're currently taking evidence from external experts. Um, Who have you been speaking to and and what have you been hearing from witnesses?
2: We've had quite a variety of witnesses um, from think tanks, from academic sources, from uh, the MOD, And uh, we've been exploring, really, the issues that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, I think one of the things that has been central to the evidence that we've taken is this understanding, trying to reach an understanding of what autonomous weapon systems really are. What is involved when you have a system like that? Do you have uh, systems which are... Artificial intelligence enabled in their entirety, or where a function, an AI function, supports what they do. So that is the sort of thing. Um, we've also been uh, hearing, and we will hear in indeed in an evidence session this week, about the ethical uh, problems that may arise and uh, being able to reach towards ideas of how AWS might be regulated, I think is something extremely valuable that the committee could do.
1: And I suppose that's, in one way, the sort of bigger issue, rather than sort of how these systems, or why these systems are used, or sort of, um, you know, literally how they're they're used, but rather if they should be used.
2: Well, I think you put your finger on it, because there are things that we wish we'd never invented as a human race, like nuclear weapons, like landmines, but they've been invented. So we've had to find ways, and with nuclear weapons we hope we have, and with landmines we hope in terms of international conventions we have. So AWS probably falls into the third, potentially threatening, but also a big challenge in terms of international agreement and regulation. But in order to regulate, you have to define, and you have to understand what systems will do.
1: And what's next for the committee?
2: Uh, we are t- uh, talking this week to um, three witnesses, who I think will give us an insight into the um, into the regulatory. Uh, side of things, um, but particularly also are in a good position to set out concerns on the ethical front. So that will be balancing some of the uh, earlier uh, evidence that we've been taking. And we're going to continue, we're looking at, uh, our our next move will be uh, looking more at the strategic side, and talking to people who've been involved in the military and still are. We will be talking to ministers at some stage later on in the inquiry. We're planning two visits, one to Cambridge and one to Glasgow and Edinburgh, a combined visit, uh, so which will give us an opportunity to see hands-on how systems how systems work and what is actually involved. Um, we've inevitably been talking quite theoretically. And in a committee room in the House of Lords, Um, theoretical is fine. But I think the committee, and certainly I, am very keen to see uh, on the ground, as it were, how systems work.
1: Lord Lisvain, thank you for joining us.
0: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Next up is Lord Readsdale, who is chairing the House of Lords Committee on the Future of the Horticultural Industry. Here's Amy and Lord Readsdale explaining what the committee is looking into.
3: Hello. So I'm Lord Reesdale, and I'm chairing the House of Lords uh, Horticultural Select Committee.
1: Lord Reesdale, you're the chair of the new Lords Committee looking into the horticultural sector. Um, first of all, what exactly do we mean by the horticultural sector?
3: So this has been some debate about uh, within the committee over what we're actually covering. So horticulture really cl- uh, covers ornamentals, which includes garden centres through to growing house plants and sort of ornamental trees even, through to fruit and vegetables, uh, which is a whole different area because it also includes uh, potatoes, even though you wouldn't see that usually as being included in horticulture.
1: So when you think of the horticultural sector, uh, some people may think, you know, it's sort of more about flowers and things like that. But, um, you know, there are actually a lot more that it encompasses.
3: Well, I have to admit, being this is the first time being chair of a select committee, and when you come up and say, "Oh, which select committee?" and you go horticulture, everybody goes, "Oh, that's nice," <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think people haven't really got a clear idea. Yes, you look at the ornamental sector, which covers garden centres, but of course that's a complicated area in itself because you have to grow the um, the flowers themselves. There's real issues about going peat-free, how we're we going to go forward with, you know, everybody buys houseplants. So we're all part of that side of the horticultural sector. But of course, then, you know, you've got uh, fruit and vegetables, which is, uh, you know, we've got a real problem with losing orchards at the moment because, you know, there isn't, the price is not high enough to actually keep them going. It's just the size of the industry that makes, I find interesting. You know, it's hundreds of thousands of jobs, it's billions in turnover. So, yes, it's really important sector. But the problem, of course, as a sector is because it's so wide, there's no one sort of overarching body that says this is important. Of course, that has a real impact on when you're looking for subsidies or when you're looking for government support or when you're looking for initiatives to help the sector. Um, It's very difficult to get the different parts together.
1: So it's actually quite, you know, a large sector, covers a lot of different areas. Um, Why do you think it's important to look at this now?
3: The difficulty horticulture has is because it's, uh, it's such a wide sector and falls under so many different headings. Uh, It's one of those areas that has not been focused on, but considering hundreds of thousands of people work in the industry and it's incredibly important for our food security, it seems unfortunate that um, this sector isn't seen as as important as certain others, even though we really rely on it. Um, So I think what we're trying to do with this committee is bring many of the issues together under one report, um, and then go to the government and say, these are the things you need to think about, especially as uh, we're focusing on climate change and technology. Climate change is going to change how we grow things in this country.
1: So, how does uh, sort of the horticultural sector and climate change uh, impact one another?
3: Obviously, you're growing in many cases uh, crops that are quite delicate. So you can have awful situations it, with the climate's been all over the place recently. So you can have late frosts. So for apple growers, that could wipe out the blossom, really affect the ha- harvest. Uh, just recently, we've been having real problems with massive rainfall, uh, which, of course, can flood out fields and make it very difficult to, um, to actually harvest certain types of uh, leaf vegetable. And the area that I found really interesting, which was when we had empty shelves Uh, It's that we're not just affected by climate change here uh, and water is going to be a big issue in the availability of water. It's also that um, climate change uh, affected um, import from other countries, so it was too hot in Morocco, it was too cold and wet in in other places. I think Spain had a problem Um, and if they come together then there just isn't the produce available. It's a specific problem for the UK because uh, the supermarkets won't pay anymore um, because they want to keep prices down but the way uh, supermarkets uh, supply their goods on the continent is they're prepared to pay more if if the market hasn't got as enough available uh, so we will end up with empty shelves because the supermarkets aren't prepared much to pay more and put prices up. I think we're going to have to start looking in the future really realizing that uh, we can't have everything we want at any time of the year um, and we have as, as consumers we've got to start thinking about the availability uh, of certain products.
1: Where do supermarkets come into all of this?
3: So the, there's a complicated relationship between growers and supermarkets and at the moment um, there's a real problem that a lot of growers are saying that they just can't meet the costs because there's been a number of um, problems with the cost base. Uh, COVID meant that you couldn't get pickers. Brexit has meant that there's uh, there's real problems, import and export because of uh, disease control on certain produce. Um, but of course, we're now the problem we have with the supermarkets is they're locked into price promises, matching each other, coming up with the lowest cost. And to do that, they then have to reduce the amount they're paying to the growers. Um, When we've talked to the supermarkets, they say, well, we have to have a very close relationship with the growers to make sure we have um, produce on the shelf. But in a cost of living crisis, obviously you want food as low as possible, but we are ending up with a situation where I think a lot of British growers are going to go out of business, and therefore you're going to end up with bringing in stuff from abroad. And eventually, of course, the price will rise if there's not the supply. So we've been talking to the, um, to the growers, and we're very keen on talking to the supermarkets. At the moment, they're not very keen on talking to us, which is a, is a real issue if you're a select committee looking at this. So we will be doing, uh, pressing them to put their case forward. And if they don't, I think that's a real—that's uh, story in itself.
1: Um, and the committee's uh, hearing from uh, experts in this area. Um, who have you been speaking to and, and what have you been hearing from them?
3: So we've been uh, speaking to the, the leaders in the horticultural sector, um, the trade bodies, individuals who uh, growers. Family growers. Now we're looking at uh, the issue around seasonal workers. So we'll be looking at uh, all the bodies involved with that. Um, from, uh, but including the farmers on the ground, which I think is an area which is often forgotten. That when you look at larger issues, horticulture is made up of a lot of family farms or family-run firms, and it's really difficult to, uh, position they're faced at the moment with rising costs and. Of course, one of the areas we're looking at is the cost of food. And the lower the cost of food, uh, the more difficult it is to, uh, to make a profit in the corporate cultural sector.
1: Picking up on seasonal workers, you're on the day of record. You're about to um, have a, a session in, in the committee um, hearing from, from experts in that area. What sort of things will, will you be asking and hoping to find out? Well,
3: I think we've, we've really looked at some of the issues around where seasonal workers come from. So we had this view that seasonal workers uh, came from what states which are now within the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's no longer the case. It's more and more difficult to get seasonal workers. Um, and this is not a problem that um, the UK is facing. It's a problem that's been faced um, by Germany, France, other countries. Uh, so you're now looking at seasonal workers from Indonesia or Nepal, which has a real issue on how you make sure that those workers when they come over aren't exploited Um, but it's a very complicated picture so a lot of the workers have great conditions here but it might be that uh, to get the job in the first place they have to pay middlemen in that third country and so they come over with debts already so it's it's looking at some of the really difficult issues around making sure that um, the workers rights are respected. Uh, But there is a of course a uh, second problem and that's uh, following on from Brexit, understanding how we can actually uh, deal with the numbers we need and the Home Office has not provided the numbers of uh, of visas required, the sector believes. And also you have a real difficulty with ceasers and workers which is picking a very precise time as I was talking about with climate change where you might have periods where the harvest is not ready, uh, that can cause real problems because you've got people turning up and there's nothing for them to do.
1: Mm -hmm. And what's next for the committee?
3: So the next area the committee is going to be looking at is uh, automation um, and technology moving forward. It's where robotics is one of the things we've been looking at but whilst it seems a great idea putting a robot in a field Some of the uh, crops they're looking at are incredibly difficult to deal with. Uh, The ones that's been highlighted are strawberries. Trying to get a robot that can pick a strawberry without crushing it (laughs) is quite difficult. And of course, that's the problem. When we look at um, at the harvesting, it's a skilled job. When you have a seasonal worker, they can use both hands to pick apples at the same time. Trying to automate the system is not um, simple, but there are some interesting interesting, uh, examples out there.
1: Uh, And finally, here's Lord Byrd. Lord Byrd founded The Big Issue and has been campaigning for action on homelessness and poverty ever since. He told us how he got into the Lords and what he hopes to achieve.
4: Hi, my name is John Byrd, Lord Byrd of Notting Hill, which is the area that I was born in, uh, in London. I'm a crossbencher. I've been in the House, I think, six years and uh, I... um, I'm, a, a, I, I'm here in my role as a representative of people in poverty and I'm here to dismantle poverty and not simply make the poor more comfortable.
1: Uh, Lord Bird, <laughs> you joined the House as a Crossbench member and perhaps are most known for founding The Big Issue. Uh, first of all, could you tell us a bit about your early life and work?
4: Yeah, um, well, I was born at the end of uh, just after the end of the Second World War. So I was actually conceived about the time the war was ending in April 1945. And I was born at the end of January, January the 30th, 1946. I was born into a very slummy part of London at the time called Notting Hill. Um, And I was born into a very big house that was divided amongst about eight families. There was one toilet. So um, if you wanted to use the toilet, you probably had to book two days in advance. Uh, and it was uh, it, it was rattling, cold, full of lice, mice, rats. It was an appalling, absolutely appalling place. Uh, the communal garden out the back was dug up and made into a rubbish tip. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And I was never been happier than playing around in the mud and the muddles and the puddles and having everybody in the street, almost a part of you, even though we weren't family. We were a London Irish family. uh, And actually, I did find out uh, much later, when I was 69, uh, that in fact, my father wasn't my father. My mother had been called what they used to call playing away from home. Uh, So I found out when I was 69 that actually I'm not half Irish and half English because my mother was Irish. I'm 95% Irish and 5% Spanish. So, But I lived in this terrible place uh, which I loved and I looked upon as home. um, But we never had any money. My parents were not very good at looking after the little money that they had. My father would spend a, a vast amount of his wages in the pub on a Saturday night. There was a lot of domestic violence um, and there was a lot of problems in that area. And I, um, when I grew up, I was in and out of prisons and places like that. But when I was 18, I I stopped my father hitting my mother for the last time uh, by giving him a good kicking. Uh, and um, he never touched her again, but she had all of those years of violence directed against her and directed against me because I was the one always in and out of trouble um, so it was a terrible I mean it, the predictability of failure if you go into our custodial system you will find that nine times out of ten the people there are people who did very badly at school so they failed at school that's one of the corollaries they come from the, the disenfranchised sections of the working class and um, they have mental health problems and physical health problems, so they come from poverty. So poverty, in a way, is a great uh, recruiting sergeant for people who end up in the prison system.
1: And growing up, you know, through that sort of turbulent childhood and, and teenage years that you've touched on, did you ever imagine that you'd be sitting in the House of Lords as a member?
4: No, I, I, I didn't. But, you see, the thing was... Uh, If you were, if I was born into poverty in Glasgow or Sheffield, you would have this idea of London, this big place and, you know, the Houses of Parliament. Well, I mean, I could get a bus from our slum uh, or two buses, uh, Change of Victoria, and I could be here. I could be here in 20 minutes, half an hour. I could get the underground because we lived near the underground. So... I would be down in Parliament Square as a, as a four-year-old and a five-year-old wandering around and I'd walk through the great parks. So uh, on occasions, at the age of five and six, I would be wandering around. So I always looked at houses of Parliament and, and I actually thought it was where they made HP Sauce, because HP Sauce, uh, so I said to my dad one day, I said, me and my brothers, we'd been to the factory that makes H- HP sauce, and he said, where's that? I said, well, it's uh, down by the river, you know, it's Parliament somewhere, and he said, oh, no, and he said, that's the House, House, House of Commons, or whatever. Anyway, uh, House of Parliament. So, no, so, uh, but I never perceived or conceived of myself ever being any more than, you know, uh, what my dad was, which was working on the bu- in the building trade. So I always thought, you know, I I might climb up the ladder and become a a plasterer. He was a general factotum. He was a lovely man. Don't get me wrong. He was a brilliant man, as long as he wasn't in his tempers. uh, And he was a very loving father, except for those terrible intermissions. And it was largely because, you know, he had six boys and he he was right at the bottom of the pile. And um, you know he, he 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 struck out because that's what happens in poverty. Um, but no, I never perceived of myself or th- thought. I mean, I I thought, you know, when I was uh, a bit older, I wanted to be a scrap metal merchant because every scrap metal merchant I knew had a wad of notes, you know, kind of ten shilling notes. They might have fifty of them. Uh, you know, so and um, but no, I, I saw myself as a kind of tradesman, um, and you know, uh, in the end, I ended up as a printer, um, and um, you know, became a tradesman, so to speak, that way.
1: And maybe we can touch a bit more on sort of your, for want of a better word, journey to the House of Lords. Um, you know, was there ever sort of a turning point? I guess for you, or a sort of big, you know, moment of change to bring you out of, of, sort of where you grew up?
4: Well, uh, uh, I, when I did my maiden speech, um, when people asked me, how did you end up in the House of Lords? And I said, by lying, cheating and stealing. <coughs> and what I meant by that, and I explained, was that every time I got nicked as a teenager or preteen, um, every time I got nicked, they taught me something. So I learned in a boys' prison, I learned to perfect my reading and writing in just a matter of weeks because a screw, I mean, a prison officer, uh, gave me a book and he got me to underline all the words that I didn't understand. And the words were all those linking words. They weren't big words like Constantinople and all that stuff. So here I was. I could find my way around this foreign language called English. Uh, And I could even sit exams, but I couldn't really... You know, the sentences wouldn't make up. So I, so in this boys' prison, nearly 16, I was nearly 16. Uh, I, 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 so that was an enormous change. But it took me another 10 years to get myself sorted out. Um, and then when I went, I was then, because we'd stolen a car and smashed it up at 87 miles an hour, a um, uh, little sports car, and because uh, I'd run away from this other institution... And then I was put in prison and I went back to this other Young Offenders Institute. And when I was there, they asked me, uh, what what do you want to do in your spare time? Because you had spare time. And what a lot of them did was woodwork or stuff like that, or stuffing um, toys for the local hospital, you know, stuffing K-POC in and signing them up and all that. And I said, I want to draw and paint. Because I had this idea, you know, I, I loved drawing and painting. And when I was at school, the only thing I ever did well was art. So I started to draw and paint. And the screw, I mean, sorry, the the, the wardens or the officers or whatever, they I thought, brilliant. So I got better and better and better. And they would give me books and all that. And then they changed their mind when they said, what do you want to do when you leave here? I said, I want to be a painter. They said, but you can't be a painter. You can't make money. And they thought... If I didn't have a job, I'd go stealing, which is exactly what I did uh, later. Uh, but uh, I was a thieving art student. <laughs> anyway, I, and I was homeless, so so I actually came out of came out of that place after a couple of years, and I could read and write. I had an enormous knowledge of art history, because they'd given me books and I'd read it almost encyclopedic, and I'd read Russian novels. I'd read you know, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and all that. And I, I went back to my working-class home and there was nobody there who I could talk to because my parents were, were not educated and didn't want to talk about Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Chimabui or Chateau. They didn't want to go to the National Gallery. So I, I felt very odd. And then I was going to evening classes. I got a job as a labourer for the Royal Borough of Kensington in the gardens department, putting up fences and concrete paths and climbing up trees and all that. So I'd be working from 7.30 till 5.30. Then I'd rush to an art class and go and draw in there. And I, I met a young lady who was an art student, and she said, why don't you just go to Chelsea School of Art and pretend you're a student? So I went there and I drew my first nude. And then I was drawing naked ladies or naked men, mainly naked ladies... For, for, you know, every night, Monday to Friday. Uh, and I became pretty good at it. And I became, uh, it's a wonderful thing to draw and to paint. And then I said to one of the, the instructors, I said, do you do you think I should uh, uh, apply for art school? And he said, he was a friend of mine. He said, oh, I thought you were already an art student. But that is why you're here. And I said, I'm not. He said, apply. So I applied. So anyway, so I met this young woman and I then fell into love and the art went out the window and we got married and I had a daughter and my life just went all funny and went, went down the tubes and I spent the next quite a few years uh, avoiding work and avoiding everything and thieving and doing all sorts of stuff like that and getting drunk and so I lost my focus. So in the end, uh, my wife left me when I was twenty-one, and I'd got into trouble with the police again, and I'd got into trouble with, with the uh, uh, with the courts and all that sort of stuff. So I I ran off ran away to Paris, not to be an artist, not to be a, a writer, but to be a thief. <laughs> so I ran off to Paris, and I met this hot bourgeois Marxist a woman in, you know, I I was 21, she was 18, she was a student at the Sorbonne, and within a matter of months, she'd completely changed me, and I came back as a Marxist, Englist, Leninist, Trotskyist, to destroy capitalism, and I joined a revolutionary group, and that was the transformation, you ask about the transformation, that was when I became the pain in the rear that I've become, I started off being the pain in the rear to capitalism, but we didn't. We didn't have to worry about destroying capitalism because Wall Street is pretty good at that. Uh, so I, I came back and I spent the next ten years trying to destroy capitalism, uh, working in factories and trying to convert people. And I met another young lady, and we had children. And then I I had picked up some skills as a printer because I'd in some you know in when I was uh, away and I wanted to be a printer so I I got jobs as a printer and I did it in the typical John Bird way I'd get a job and after about three hours they say you can't print so I'd lose it (laughs) and then you know so I so I had about nine jobs and by the time I'd got to the end of the ninth job I knew how to print and and then I so I got a job working for the 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 English Folk Dance and Song Society. And I was their printer up in Camden Town. And I printed my own books. And I printed magazines and I started publishing and all sorts of stuff like that. So and I was uh, and I was in this revolutionary group. And uh, you know, I was like, it's all over the place. I had a little motorbike, went everywhere selling prints and selling stuff. And then my lust for the revolutionary movement shrunk, largely because it was a very, very so I fell, fell out of love with the revolutionary movement. And also they were all moralizing. They were always looking for, you know, they, they were defining themselves by the failures of others, which to me, I don't do that. So in the chamber, I don't want to pick on the government. I don't want to pick on the opposition. I, I am a true crossbencher. I just want to see how can we work with people so we can bring social transformation. And therefore I work with people who you would not go down the pub with or you wouldn't invite them to your dinner party. You may. But the thing is, I am really religiously, I don't moralise about who is good and who is bad. Uh, so that's, that's so, And I got all of that because I'd been through Marxism and all the left stuff. And then I, 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 uh, I really prospered under Margaret Thatcher uh, because my I started my own printing business and it went like this. It went up. You know, I, I one, one, one week I was getting thirty seven pounds a week as a printer, and the next month when I bought a machine and converted my garage, because my wife had, my, my wife's family had uh, had helped buy a house for us, so I converted the garage and I had a print shop and one week i was on 37 and the first month of trade i made a profit of 700 pounds and this was uh, you know maggie had just come in and i thought oh she's just, she. <laughs> so i <laughs> oh no she was just about to come in so i became a bit of a Thatcherite for a while and then when she started kicking the unions around i went off her because i thought you know i thought she was i thought she was there for the working classes because she came from poor stock and all right and she had a posh accent but you know she had to learn that didn't she you know that was required to talk so there's been a number of transformations then when I got to about 40 and I had my children and uh, uh and they were growing up I had two children uh, I I thought to myself I've been through all this muck this mire there must be a way of helping other people who are in it. So I started working with homeless organizations and I did their printing. So I didn't go along and clean up for them because they had a number of, you know, anybody can clean up, but nobody could print and, and promote uh, their, their, uh, their, their um, you know, what they were doing. So I helped them design stuff and I printed it up and I got it done for cost, you know. Um, and so that was then, so i worked with the Simon community and I really loved them because what they would do, they would take anybody, ordinary people from whatever, and you would go and live in the hostels and you'd work with these people. You wouldn't get paid, but you'd, you know, you'd almost be, so you'd get to know the reality behind homelessness and the reality and the problems of, uh, that people were living, and the, the problems that they were carrying. So that was, uh, so when I got to 40, I was, well, you know, I need to make, I need to do something with my life. I've, I've You know, I, I wasn't wealthy, but I mean, I was comfortable. And uh, I was watching the telly one day, and um, lo and behold, this very, very big-nosed Scotsman, I mean, he was a ginormous nose. And I thought, I know that guy. Because I'd met him when I was hiding from the police in Edinburgh at the age of 21, and him and his wife and Richard Branson were launching a new condom range called uh, Mates. And this was, this was a socially conscious condom company. And I said, and that guy was a guy called Gordon Roddick, and his wife was Anita Roddick, and they'd started The Body Shop, and they'd become multi-millionaires. So here I was saying, what am I gonna do next? And I rang him up, and, he, and we, you know, we were great mates, because we'd met when I was hiding from the police, and I met him in a pub, and I used to get him to buy me drinks, which he, he he didn't, And he, I had a, his nose was kind of like that. My nose was, you know, broken and all. And we both looked as though someone, you know, a horse had trodden on us, you know. <laughs> and when I saw him, his nose looked even bigger because he'd shaved his beard off. <laughs> anyway, sorry. But he became a great friend of mine. And he, it was him who in 1990 went to New York and he was walking around Manhattan and he saw this guy who was like a wardrobe walking towards him. And he thought, oh, this looks bad news. And it was a guy who was selling a paper called Street News. And um, the, uh, so he said to, the guy said, excuse me, sir, would you like a copy of my street paper? And Gordon said, yeah, how much is it? He says, it's a dollar. He said, how does it work? He says, well, I buy it for 50 cents and I sell it for a dollar. And he says, why'd you do that? He says, well, I come from Brownsville. Uh, in um, uh, um, Brownsville, where Mike Tyson comes from, he said, you don't get out of there without a prison sentence or unless you're a sportsman. And he said, I've been in and out of the prison penitentiary system for most of my life. I'm 54. If I get nicked again, they'll throw the key away. And I will never see my children. So now I'm selling this paper. I'm earning my own money. I am not on, on benefit or anything like that. Everything I make pays for my room and it pays for me to send some money to my child who I want to see go through the college. So Gordon said, great. In London at that time, in 1990, the last year of Thatcher, there were thousands of homeless people sleeping in the streets because one of the things that Margaret Thatcher's administration had done, apart from closing down virtually all of them, the main industries, uh, and causing the, you know nearly a million people to be on social security, she'd close down the mental institutions and not replace them with anything. It's called care in the community, which didn't really mean anything. And I was campaigning at the time, this was before the big issue, saying if you close down the, the appalling mental institutions and not replace them with something, then what will happen is the streets will fill up the hospitals will fill up, and the, and the prisons will fill up. 60%, 70% of people in, in prisons have mental health problems. And that's exactly what happened. That one cost-cutting exercise. And we are still living the madness of not just closing down all of those industries. I'm not being particularly political here because I think there was something needed to be done, she closed down all of those industries and as Lord, uh, uh, Lord Tabit said recently, they didn't put enough back to, to, so that people could go to another job. There was not that, they should have done it slower and they should have reinforced the community with new jobs and new opportunity and education. So, so, that was one of, so that's one of the reasons why the streets were full up, and a lot of them were northern kids. Uh, and then there was a, another in, um, innovation done by the government, which was if you came from a social security family, your parents were on it, and a lot of people in the north were, the whole family. If you left school at 16, from the age of 16 to 18, you would get social security, and they took that away. So suddenly, a family would have less income. And then it caused fights and arguments, and children just, you know, young as 16 and 17, just hit the streets. And they ended up... And we started... When we started working on the big issue, there was an enormous amount of youngsters from Manchester and Newcastle and all the ex-mining areas. And so Gordon thought, you know, if we get this paper over here... We could actually give people alternatives to begging, to stealing and to prostitution. And this is, to me, you know, people might complain, oh, you know, the big issue's still here and we haven't got rid of homelessness. I said, I didn't start the big issue to get rid of homelessness. I started the big issue so that people could earn money, so that when they earned their money, they earned their own money and they didn't have to get into trouble to earn the money. They didn't, and if they had habits like cigarettes or drugs or drink, they didn't have to rob your granny to do that. So I decriminalised the homeless, and to me, if if and I have to keep telling people because they forget that, it is the greatest thing I've ever done. And whatever I do from now on, henceforth, from you know how long I'm in the House of Lords, uh, that decriminalisation of people by giving them a legitimate make of, way of making money is, is, the, is the... So we work with all sorts of people uh, from all over the world who have come to the UK, because if we don't work with them, they'll get into trouble.
1: And you often um, ask questions to government you know, about, about these issues, about homelessness and support for those on low incomes. Um, why do you think it's important to put those questions to ministers and, and hold the government to account on those issues?
4: I should explain why I came into the Lords, and then you'll see what I mean by that. Um, but you see, the thing is, I got cheesed off. Uh, Ten years after the big issue started in 2001, 9-11 actually was uh, our anniversary, uh, 2001, the Times, this journalist from the t- Times asked me, all right, John Bird, you've been doing this for the last 10 years. What are you going to do for the next 10 or 20 years? And I said, well, what I've been doing is so far is I've been, mending, uh, I've been mending broken clocks. And for the next 10 or 20 years, I'm going to try and prevent the clocks breaking. So I was going to move into prevention, and it took me a while. Um, and I got really excited at the idea. I have invented a way of, of being able to establish what a social business or a charity was doing. And I called it PEC, Prevention emergency, coping and cure. So if you take that and you put it over any organization or endeavor, you can say, is this a prevention? Is this preventing the problem happening? Or is it an emergency? Is it a means of, of, um, of responding to something that's gone wrong? Is it a coping thing, you know, like holding them hand while they're still in poverty or in need? Or is it a cure? 80% of all the money spent by government and in the world is spent on emergency and coping. If you look at social security bill, the Emer- so- social security bill is largely made up with helping people cope with the emergency of poverty. Not to get them out, not to get them to Oxbridge, not to get them uh, places where they can, they can shine and bubble, where their children can, can uh, grow. It's not, it's just holding fast. It's it's like the bus of opportunity is gonna come sometime and we're standing at the bus stop and it never arrives. And in my opinion, uh, I needed to, so I developed this methodology which has been used in Wales and it's been used in Australia, and we're now going back to it. and I, I thought I've got to I've got to put the P and the C on the end of emergency and coping because the area I was working in was emergency and coping, so I had to do prevention. So we invented a a, a finance business called the Big Issue Invest. We invest in. 500 social businesses around the UK, and all the money doesn't come from the selling of the paper. It comes from money that we get from banks and from trusts and all that. And they give us the money, and we package it up and put it into places. And you know, we, you know, into into everything. We we've, we've invested in schools. We've invested in hospices. We've invested in all sorts of things. Uh, anyway, so. So I got to a situation about 2010. And I, I kept pushing this prevention, prevention. And then the big issue, invest, was really beginning to take off. And, and I thought, I, you know, the real problem is people are still not getting a hold of this thing. And then somebody said to me, you ought to go into the House of Lords. And I said, well, I want to go in with them talk, talking shop. What are they going to do? And then what what happened about 2012? Somebody, I got really cheesed off. I have to say, all these people saying, "John Bird, you're like a beautiful butterfly. You're so fresh." I mean, all this. I'm not joking. I'd go there. People say, "Wow! If only I could be John Bird." And I would say, "Look, I wasn't John Bird. I've become John Bird with three percent, a little step at a time." anybody can do what i am doing i swear on my life i am not the brightest bloke on the block i'm not clever i uh, you know i'm not educated i'm you know i pick things up and i i realized and then they were saying john bird you really do know how to think outside the box and then it suddenly struck me the reason they're telling me i can think outside the box is cuz the box isn't working and then in 2012 I made the decision I would get in the box so I applied and I was incredibly honest in my application to become a member of the House of Lords under the People's Peer, which uh, Tony Blair had brought in and I applied and it was very simple I just said this is who I am and this is what I've done uh, everybody who saw the my, my application said, "But you know, you're not really selling yourself." I said, "Look, if they don't want me, they don't want me." So I sent this in. Uh, about six months later, they said, "You know, sorry, we we only appoint a couple of a year across benches through this process, but we keep you on on file." And then, after I think it was about two years, I don't know, uh, they called me for an interview. So I went to the interview, and they said. Uh, they said, uh, you know, they asked me all these questions. What, what would I do in the House of Lords? And I said, well, I'm very interested in bringing in legislation, and I'm, I'm very interested in looking at legislation, even though I'm not very good at detail. But I, you know, I want to. But also, I want to get rid of poverty, and I want to use the House of Lords as a methodology, using my methodology in the House of Lords. Anyway, then they said to me, which was. Uh, they said, "I said, what's going to happen now?" They said, "Well, you'll either get a letter to say no, thank you. You'll get a letter to say uh, we uh, um, consider, you know, we'll put you down for another time, uh, or, or you you will get a letter to say uh, that you're in." And, um, and 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 then I said, "Any more interviews?" And they said, "No, no, we never call anybody back." I said. A year passes, and then I get a letter saying, would I come for an interview? <laughs> so I come, I say, I've already been for an interview. I've already given you my half an hour. Anyway, and then uh, Lord Caker, who was on, who was uh, running the thing, said, you know, you'll hear from us. And then maybe three months later, I got a phone call to say uh, that Lord Caker wanted to talk to me, so I... Um, nearly fell over I was in a gardening centre drinking tea and I dropped the tea and it went all down my trousers (laughs) so I was trying to have a conversation and clean up and and it was he said "Uh, congratulations you're in and then about six months later you know that was July and then six months later it was announced in the press so I came into the House of Lords to dismantle poverty. So, see, what I find so strange is that the House of Lords is a very interesting place that it hides its light under a bushel. You know, uh, there's probably, I would say probably 300, maybe a bit more, really active peers. And they are people who are, who are hereditary, life peers, they're conservatives, they're Labour, they're Lib Dem, they're whatever... And they're all and so so actually it's a pretty neat arrangement, you know. When it's full, it is full, and I think it takes about five hundred. But the thing is, it it does it looks at the detail. And I remember one of the first things I did when I came in the house was looked at the housing bill. And the housing bill, and I don't want to slag off the other place because you know they don't like that and they might they might close me down. Anyway, um. But the, the housing bill, it, to me it was a bit like the, the the commons had put together this boat and they'd floated it down the river to us. And then we got on the boat and made it seaworthy because it wasn't seaworthy. And I got involved in the detail and that. I, and I thought, this is why people are here. Now, that's not my strength and I... I, um, I um, um, use the House of Lords to project the work that I do in the big issue and in society in general around prisons and around poverty and around future generations, which is one of my great um, ambitions to get a, a law about future generations similar to the wonderful stuff that's being done in Wales around future well-being of future generations. And so you've got to hold the government to account, account. but you can't just do that by telling them off in the chamber or in... You've got to go and have meetings with them. So I go and have meetings with, 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 with ministers in and around the specialist areas, and I've met quite a number of them. And people say, you know, why do you want to talk to Michael Gove? He's not... And I say, well, you know, I know Michael Gove, and we can have a working relationship. So when the COVID thing hit... Lo and behold, we were one of the first persons who were called on to remove our people from the streets and put them and help with the process of getting people housed because they had hoped for, they'd planned on receiving, I think, about five or six thousand, and there was thirty-two thousand that they had to lift off the streets. So there were all sorts of things like that. Then we uh, one of the big campaigns that we were were to try and prevent people falling into homelessness because of COVID. So we led this really big campaign, rattling and rattling, and always asking the government, concentrating on the government, focusing our thing, don't allow people to slip into homelessness. And unfortunately, quite a number of other players in the field were saying things like, um, oh, uh, what we need uh, as we need the local, the government to make sure when people fall homeless, they have a pretty good temporary accommodation, transitional housing, or whatever. And I was saying, no, no, that's too late. You imagine any of us falling into homelessness. You imagine your parents falling into homelessness and you're a young child. What What's that going to do to your school? What's that going to do to your social life? What's that going to do to your well-being? So prevention was really, really important. And we banged on, we created something called, uh, I, I forget the name, it was Ride Out Recession Alliance, uh, RORA or something like that. Uh, and, you know, I mean... It's, another one of my nutty inventions. So we did that and we got people like Unilever and, and Nationwide to do things. So Nationwide immediately said, we will not issue any ev- um, evictions for the next year if people have fallen behind with their mortgages and all that stuff. And then we got the co-op to do that as well. So the co-op s- stopped because they got quite a lot of shops. So we, we were being very, very practical. And eventually the government did put money into the uh, into this stop homelessness. And they put in the region of about six hundred and fifty million, which was what we were largely asking for. So that only happened because there were people that people like me, and I I can't I don't know who else was doing it, was me putting my arm around the government. Said, come on, lads, come on, come on. And we had a bill that came on the, through the House uh, for the second reading uh, on, on Friday. And it's my bill in the House, but it's, it's Simon Fell, uh, MP for Baron Furness. It's his bill. He, it was a private member's bill. It was taken up by the government. And, I, and I'm the sponsor in the House of Lords. So I'm working with Lord Bellamy. I'm working with the government. To, to stop Friday releases because if you release somebody on a Friday, then they can't they can't get the services because they because they close at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. How does
0: the sponsorship come about? Who's been interested in this? Are you approached or how, 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 well, how did you come to be the sponsor?
4: Well, I I think it came through Simon Fell. And the reason for that is because Simon and I have worked on a bill which is the Wellbeing of Future Generations bill. Mm. So I started it in the Commons, in the Lords, and he took it over in the Commons, so it became his bill there. I'm very, very interested in being in in being useful in an area which is practical. And I'm I mean, our well being of future generations bill, we're redesigning it because it does look a bit what if? It's a bit
0: airy-fairy. So is that how you're seeing private members' bills? You've mentioned a few yeah. there that you've piloted, so you're obviously very keen on them, but you're not looking necessarily for them to come law, you want to make the change. I want to make the change. Yeah. And I, I want to be an,
4: an irritation uh, as well as a practical person. I want them to feel, oh, God, you know, this guy's... We've got to listen to this guy. and And, you know... Uh, I'm in the infancy of my parliamentary career. If the Lord gives me enough time, I want to do this for another five or six years mm-hmm. uh, into my early eighties. And I want to I want to see PEC, uh, you know, prevention, emergency, coping and cure. I want to see PEC everywhere. So when people want to invest in something or when you want to give part of your pocket, uh, your wage, You say, oh, where where shall I give my £10 a month or whatever? Uh, Prevention or or coping or, you know, emergency. So I I want to peckify the country. I I want people to know where where they are in the pecking order. (laughs) There you are.
0: Obviously, your life story today has been all about
4: learning. What have you learned about the House of Lords from being a member? I've learned that it's, well... uh, this has come as a bit of a surprise, I never fitted in anywhere. And the reason for that is because I didn't really fit in, in, you know, when I was a child, because I had a very bad life, and I was in and out of prison, and I was in an orphanage, and stuff like that. And I, I always felt I was in somebody else's world. And then when I, even when I went to art school, I never really Fitted in, And when I joined the revolutionary group, I didn't fit in. I didn't fit anywhere. I was like some kind of awkward, you know, three, three-legged man or something like that. And when I came into the House of Lords, you're in there and they all know why you're there and they know what you've done. So immediately there is a camaraderie and an openness and nobody can walk around the house with me without me slowing down and talking to one of the staff one of the police officers because they're all brilliant and or talking to the catering because I used to wash up in the house of lords uh 52 years ago uh so I'm I'm that kind of geezer and and I mean there are some people who kind of poo poo you know they look up their nose at me but most of them uh say I like what you do and it's wonderful it's like it, it's like walking around with a sign saying, this bloke knows what he's talking about. I would also like, um, I would also like to see more people like me who didn't start life at the start of the race. We started way back. We came from, we were coming from behind. We were way back. And many, many, many of us, most of us in this country, don't start nowhere near the starting line. And I got to the starting line probably when I was in my late teens or early 20s. I want to bring those people into the House of Lords. I want people who are not interested in politics. I want to inspire them to be interested in politics, which will bring about social change. Lord Baird, thank you for joining us. I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it. And I hope you do.
0: And that's it for this episode of the podcast. We'll be back soon with more from the UK Parliament's Second Chamber.